Okay, we, we're going to start. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us uh, this noon, either in the auditorium or on Zoom. It's a great pleasure to have uh, back with us uh, Raffaello Pantucci, uh, who's a good friend of the Institute, who was with us uh, a few weeks ago for the uh, 101 uh, course. Uh, and uh, he will be here uh, today uh, to discuss uh, a new book uh, that uh, just uh, came out uh, and uh, which is titled Sinostan, China's Inadvertent Empire. Uh, before leaving the floor to him for his uh, uh, short introduction uh, of the book, the background, let, let me say a few words uh, on uh, Raffaello. He's uh, currently a senior fellow at uh, the Rajana Ratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University based in Singapore. He also uh, works as a senior associate fellow of RUSI based in London. Uh, his research focuses on terrorism, counterterrorism, as well as China's relations with Western uh, neighbors. Uh, he has uh, held various positions uh, with think tanks. Uh, I'll mention just a few of them. Uh, the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, as well as the Center for Strategic and International uh, Studies uh, in Washington. It's a great pleasure uh, to have him uh, with us this afternoon. And without further ado, I will uh, leave you the floor, Raffaello, uh, to present the book. And then uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll go for about 40 minutes of uh, conversation uh, with the people in the room as well as on Zoom. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Jean-Luc, for that wonderful uh, introduction uh, and for the generous uh, hosting that MEI has done for me to come and talk about my uh, new book. It's an immense pleasure to come and talk to you and uh, to a couple of you who I see are in the audience already. You've already heard me plug this book mercilessly before, so you will now hear me go into it in greater detail, and thank you for uh, bearing with me. So the book itself is called Sinusan, China's Inadvertent Empire. Um, and it's a book I, I should briefly mention that I have written as a co-authored text with a good friend of mine, Alexandros Peterson, who was very sadly killed uh, in Kabul in 2014. We started this project together in 2010 um, uh, when I was living in China and he was living uh, in, in Europe at the time, and then he moved out to Central Asia. Um, and you know, we started the project together um, and it felt appropriate to finish it together, even though ultimately I ended up doing a lot of the drafting and crafting of the text. But the book ultimately draws then on basically 10 years of research and travel around Central Asia. Um, in the four years when Alex was with us, traveling with him, and then subsequently by myself with other colleagues where I got to go to all five of the Central Asian countries a number of times, got up to China's borders with all of them, except for the Afghan one. Um, I traveled around Russia, uh, around Xinjiang, um, and other parts of China, and uh, even further afield space like Iran and India and Pakistan. So. All of that kind of research sort of informs uh, the text of the book. And so when I put up this map, it's as much a map of my travels around this region as it is uh, an important starting point, I think, for when we're trying to look at China's relations with the region. Because the purpose of the book was to try to understand with uh, this neighboring region were being shaped. And one of the really important things to start with when we're thinking about China's relations with Central Asia is to recognize geography. And geography is important for a number of reasons. The first is that if we think about Central Asia, and this is where this map is really important, we see that the region that abuts Central Asia, which is Xinjiang, which is the part, you know, uh, let's see if this has a wonderful picture here. Uh, you know, Xinjiang is next to Central Asia. And the important thing to remember is basically this entire area is really what we should call Central Asia, and that includes Xinjiang. And when we think about Xinjiang and look at the populations within it, we have within Central Asia, within Xinjiang, a population, large populations of Central Asian peoples. There's around a million ethnic Kazakhs that live in Xinjiang. You've got, of course, a large population, about 10 million Uyghurs who live in Xinjiang. Um, Uyghurs who are, of course, ethnically closer to the Central Asian Turkic countries that are the next to than the Han Chinese that we would traditionally associate with China. And even within Central Asia, in Kazakhstan, you've got large diasporas of Uyghurs, the same in Kyrgyzstan, the same in Uzbekistan. So this region is really interlinked together and has been uh, for a very long time. And this is something that's really important to bear in mind because it really does shape China's thinking towards Central Asia. It's not a kind of a distant region that it can sort of look at uh, in the far away. It is a place that it has a very intimate and human connection with. And so when we go back to the sort of foundation of modern Central Asia, the five lands countries that we know of, 
you know, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. It's, of course, worth remembering that these countries only really came into existence about 30 years ago when the Soviet Union fell apart. And suddenly they went from being, you know, parts of the larger Soviet Union to being independent countries. And so when this happened, China suddenly had to quickly forge relations with this new cluster of countries. And so from sharing one border with the Soviet Union, it suddenly shared a border with five, with four new countries, um, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and, um, uh, and the Russian Federation, of course. And so what we see happen is that China immediately starts to define and try to delineate its borders uh, with this region. And part of that was done through this structure that you see created here, uh, which is represented by a meeting of the leaders of the five countries, which is called the Shanghai Five Grouping which has Rahman of Tajikistan, Yeltsin of Russia, Jiang Zemin of China, Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan, and Askar Akayev of Kyrgyzstan. Um, and basically, the, the grouping, the Shanghai Five, was essentially to define China's borders with these countries and to try to delineate what was actually, you know, these new nations that China was sharing borders with. And the Shanghai Five grouping was one that was seen as very successful from China's perspective, so successful that then in 2001, they escalated it into create, turning it into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which was created in June 2001 with the joining of Uzbekistan, uh, we see becomes a kind of really important first international security institution that China is actually crafting itself on the world stage. But it was born out of this idea of trying to define China's borders with the former Soviet Union. But to kind of understand the SCO properly, you have to look at another key thing that happens in 1994. And you can see there a photo of uh, Premier Li Peng visiting uh, Kazakhstan and meeting with then uh, President of Kazakhstan, Nursultan Nazarbayev. And this is part of a visit that uh, Premier Li did in 1994, where he traveled around Central Asia and visited all four, well, four of the Central Asian capitals. He didn't go to Dushanbe, which at the time, Tajikistan was racked by a really horrible civil war, so it wasn't a safe place to travel. But he also visited Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. And through this visit, we see at every stop, Premier Li talking about the things that are important to China in forging its relations with these new countries. And the two key issues that you see coming up at every capital, um, one is the question of worrying about dissidents, uh, militant dissidents, using Central Asia as a base to cause instability within China. And specifically there, he's thinking about Uyghur militants. Um, at the time, of course, there was this strong connection, this human link I talked about in the previous slide, where we saw there was large sort of diaspora links that went across the border that China shared with uh, this region. And the Uyghur group and community, the Uyghur community in particular, was one of great concern to China because they recognized that there was a tension in Xinjiang between the Uyghur minority and the Han majority increasingly. Um, and this tension was leading to violence and trouble that they saw as linked across the border. And so Premier Li lobbied at every capital for these capitals to work with China to deal with these separatist problems. Um, also, it was a subject that the locals were quite worried about as well, because if you know much about Central Asia, you'll know that there's a deep intermingling between the various communities in those countries as well. So while, for example, you look at a country like Uzbekistan, which is, of course, the home of the Uzbek people, there are large Tajik diasporas that live within that country as well. If you go to the ancient cities of Bukhara, that's really a majority Tajik city. You know, you're talking about places where there's a very deep intermingling. So they were quite worried about these issues as well. So it's something that resonated with them and that they that appealed to them. The other thing that Premier Li mentioned at every stop, uh, which is important to think, again, when we're thinking about modern China's relations with this region, is Silk Roads, new Silk Roads, you know, which I'm sure you've all heard about a lot. Uh, it's a big topic in Central Asia more broadly, but for China in particular, it was very important and very interesting. But the important thing to remember at this point was that the Silk Roads and the connectivity that they were talking about, which was again about roads, about pipelines, about rail. Here, the discussion was much more about getting Central Asian resources across China to the seas. At the time in the 1990s, China was not kind of the boom international economic story that it was today. At the time, the big boom economies were Japan and Korea, you know, the countries that were coming out from their periods of, uh, well, Korea was coming out from its period of sort of authoritarianism, and Japan, which was really having its big boom moment in the sun. And so they were the big consumptive economies that wanted Central Asian resources. And so the stories of pipelines and the memorandum of understanding that we saw Premier, that we see Premier Li sign when he visits uh, Turkmenistan, for example, was really about getting access to Turkmen gas, not for China, but ultimately for pipeline networks that they would build across China to get over to Japan. 
So it's interesting to think about this because we look at, you know, we think about uh, Central Asia, we think about connectivity in China, we tend to think about it going into China. But the narrative of connectivity goes back a long way in Chinese thinking, but earlier it was one that went sort of across China rather than to China as the consumer. And then I want to pull us forwards a little bit uh, to 2009, when there was large-scale rioting represented in the photo here uh, by the crowds of people you can see uh, in Urumqi, in Xinjiang, where the Uyghur community, uh, Urumqi in particular, got started a series of protests that escalated into violence that led to widespread disorder in Urumqi, but also more widely around the region, and led to the deaths of around 200 or so people that were reported in the official media. Of course, it's not exactly clear whether that number was exactly accurate. We had protests by the Uyghur minority the next day that was followed by counter-protests by the Han uh, community who were angry at the state for failing to protect them. Um, and this is a really important moment, I think, in China's conceptions of uh, what it's doing in Central Asia. And it highlights in some ways how important uh, Xinjiang is in Chinese thinking towards Central Asia. At the end of the day, from Chinese perspective, you know, Central Asia is important because it provides not only a place for natural resources, which are important to the Chinese economic machine and previously were important as a sort of transit thing for China. But it's also because Xinjiang as a region is as landlocked as the Central Asian countries that it's next to. So if you want to develop and make this region more prosperous, you really have to improve its connectivity in all sorts of directions. And what we see happen after 2009 is a real reinvigoration of this concept within uh, Chinese thinking towards Xinjiang. We see in 2010, there's a big work summit hosted by uh, then Premier Li Keqiang, um, who brings together senior leaders to really try to rethink how they're going to develop Xinjiang economically. And one of the big drivers you can see coming out of this discussion is not only a kind of internal push of trying to get China's richer coastal provinces to invest more in Xinjiang, and there's lots of twinning. You know, for example, Shanghai becomes responsible for Kashgar prefecture. Um, and so basically Shanghai Communist Party cadres are sent over to Kashgar to help the local cadres develop their kind of expertise, to help them think about opening a kind of financial market or something in Kashgar. Um, in Tianjin, they become responsible for some of the Tajik, some of the parts of, um, of Xinjiang that are close to the Tajik border. And they try to think about how they can set up special economic zones there. And so you see lots of this internal twinning and lots of these parts, the richer parts of the country trying to sponsor the sort of poorer parts and help them develop. But at the end of the day, if you're going to develop Xinjiang, you're going to have to develop its connectivity and its links to the regions next to it. Because really, you know, if you're sitting in, in Kashgar, you're almost closer to Europe in some ways than you are uh, physically uh, to uh, the eastern coast of China. It's a six or so hour flight, you know, from Kashgar across, whereas, you know, you can fly over to the Caucasus or even Turkey in a shorter period of time from there, not that there are direct flights. Um, so it's, you know, it's a very remote part. So you really have to think about connectivity in that direction. And so what we see happen in 2009 is a sort of acceleration of this policy and a push of all this economic investment towards Xinjiang, ultimately spilling over the border into Central Asia as part of this kind of connectivity push. And this brings us to the photo you can see next uh, on this slide, which is a picture of Premier uh, President Xi Jinping giving the first of two speeches that he gave, and this one is at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan, when in September 2013, he talked about the creation of a Silk Road economic belt. Um, and this you know, was the first of two speeches. A month later, he goes to Jakarta and gives a speech in, um, in, in the Indonesian parliament where he talks about creating a 21st century maritime Silk Road. And these two speeches become the foundational kind of documents of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but the key here, in some ways, is that we can see President Xi putting his stamp and his name and his imprimatur, and ultimately his vision of what China's global foreign policy should look like. He's putting a stamp on something that had been happening in Central Asia for many years before, and even before, in fact, the riots that we see in, in 2009, but you know, a kind of a narrative flow that goes all the way back to the end of the Soviet Union and China's sort of reshaping of its relations with this region. And so this is you know, important in that you can see that in some ways what we see happening is, uh, is China and, and Xi Jinping in particular using Central Asia as his kind of starting point for this global vision for China's foreign policy going forwards. Um, but you know, while this is important in terms of thinking about why China's interested in Central Asia and why it's important, I think, to look at Central Asia when we're trying to think about Chinese foreign policy more generally, it's always important to remember that from a Chinese perspective, the kind of core issue which animates their relations with Central Asia is security. 
and it's security in a very domestic sense of the word. And so the concern is, as you can see at the bottom here, this photo of these armed men marching around with balaclavas on. This is a snapshot from a video put out by the Turkestan Islamic Party, the Hezbollah Islamic Turkestani, which is often referred to as the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, um, ETIM, or they call themselves TIP. This organization is a kind of militant Uyghur organization that seems to have a larger presence in Syria, some sort of a footprint in Afghanistan, has a sort of history of connections with Al-Qaeda and other groups. Um, but the whole concern that China always has is that militant groups, either Uyghurs or increasingly beyond uh, Uyghur groups in Central Asia, would ultimately threaten China's stability. And this is really the kind of central animating concern. The instability in this neighboring region will come into China, cause instability in Xinjiang, and ultimately threaten uh, the Chinese Communist Party's control of the country. And so when we're looking at China's sort of security relations through this region, from their perspective, it's really seen primarily through an economic lens, but we do see something of, an of a security footprint as well. But it's a very light and very specific security footprint that we can see. And it's one that's very focused on Chinese domestic security concerns. And this brings me to the other photo we have there, which is a picture of some PAP, uh, Chinese People's Armed Police, marching alongside their Tajik border guard counterparts uh, along that border. Um, and, you know, Tajikistan is uh, one of the few places where China's actually built a security base outside of its national borders. Um, and it's really about China having oversight and look into its, uh, uh, its uh, you know, what's happening in Afghanistan um, and giving it an ability to project its own security force outside, but ultimately really not concerned about regional security, but concerned about security back in Xinjiang. And it's important to note that it's the People's Armed Police that's leading this deployment uh, because they're the ones who ultimately are responsible for domestic security. But the really key driver of kind of China's relations that everyone looks at with this region is economics. And I'm not gonna to linger too much on this because I think it's one that there's a vast volume of detail that I can uh, go into, into later if people are interested. But the one thing I would say is there's often a very uh, a lazy set of assumptions that I hear people saying about China's relations with Central Asia, which is that economically speaking, China's only interested in the natural resources. They want the oil, they want the gas, they want the hydro, they want the mineral wealth that exists. And it is true they do want this, but the key thing is that if you look, you'll find Chinese investment and Chinese economic engagement across the board. In almost every sector of Central Asian economy, you can find some evidence of Chinese activity. In some cases, it's encouraged. In some cases, it's actively worked together. In other cases, it's not. It happens in all sorts of different ways. But it's a story that really goes in every sort of sector. And the other key thing I want to sort of flag up here, um, which I think is important, is that it's not all state-directed. Um, there is often an assumption that anything that comes out of China is something that's directed by, you know, Xi Jinping himself has made a decision, said, okay, company X, go. No, it's an awful lot of private enterprise as well. And this is why I think if we're looking at the sort of economic relations that China has with the region, there is a component, quite a large component that is state-driven, but it goes far beyond that. And there's a huge sort of private component to it as well, which is always important to remember uh, when we're trying to sort of understand how uh, these relationships work. And... The interesting other side to this, of course, is how is Central Asia perceived on the ground? And this is something that I found, you know, changed as I went to the region the sort of 10 years or more that I got to travel there. You know, when I first went there in some of the countries, and Tajikistan is the best example of this, there was a very, very light interest and curiosity about China. It was very difficult for me to find anyone who was researching the subject, found very few people who spoke any Mandarin. Whereas when I went last time to Tajikistan, which was in 2019, just before the pandemic, actually it was early 2020, just before the pandemic, um, there was a surfeit of young Tajiks who'd learned Mandarin. There was a lot more interest and it was actually a lot very negative. And there was a real public anger and hatred towards China, which wasn't particularly based on anything tangible. It was more a sentiment, a kind of real sense of Sinophobia and fear. And it's one that you could see nationalist movements across the region have been tapping and pushing. Um, and here, as you can see at the top uh, corner where you can see two uh, men in those, in those white hats up there uh, uh, standing. These are Kyrgyz nationalists. It's a Kyrgyz nationalist movement called Kyrgyz Cholor who like to go around to Chinese restaurants and basically abuse the locals and say, you know, you Chinese vermin, have you come into our country and stealing our things? And they'll sort of point to all sorts of problems. And this is actually quite a strong vote winner in, in, in Kyrgyzstan. But the other side to this 
is the soft power push that you can see, which actually does resonate. You know, I visited the Confucius Institutes in uh, all four of the countries that they're present. Uh, Turkmenistan is the one country where you don't see uh, uh, any Confucius Institutes presence, but there are some Confucius Institute teachers working out of the local universities teaching uh, uh, teaching uh, Chinese. Um, and you can see there that there is a community that do want to learn Mandarin, that do want to engage with China. And it's seen at a very pragmatic level. This is not done out of some sort of adoration of, you know, Xi Jinping or, or China in some way. It's very practical. You know, it's a very practical need that they see that China is the big economic story that they're living next to. And it's one that they would like to try to engage with. You know, having said that, there are no real uh, economic positive stories. I would say that this was one exception. This young woman is a young Uzbek who spoke very good Mandarin. She was correcting me constantly. Um, and her great desire was to go to live in China to go become a TV presenter on CCTV or CGTN. Uh, this is her kind of goal in life. And here she is winning a competition at one of the uh, Chinese bridge competitions, you know, these things sponsored by the local embassy for people, Mandarin speakers, to show off their chops. And she was very good. The woman in front of us, her teacher, you can see, is very proud of her student. But she really was, uh, she was an exception, to be honest with you. I did not find many Central Asians who are learning Mandarin out of a sort of passion um, in this direction. Uh, I'm very conscious of time, Jean-Luc, and the, the time you allocated to me, so I will be brief on my final couple of slides. I'll maybe throw out some hooks, which I'll welcome people to pick up on if they're interested to hear more. And the first is on Afghanistan, which, um, you know, there's a whole chapter in my book about Afghanistan. Um, it was sadly where Alex was killed, so it has a kind of a deep connection to the book uh, in many ways. But I think it's interesting to observe because Afghanistan animates a lot of increasingly Chinese thinking towards Central Asia, and there's a level of concern. But also the underlying premise that kind of we, we came up with in this book, which is that this is China's inadvertent empire. And what do we mean by that? We mean a region where China is clearly becoming the most consequential actor on the ground, but China's very little interest in trying to fix any of the problems. It's very narrowly focused on how it's going to, what happens in the region will impact China. And that's kind of where it's going to draw the line. And that's what it's focused on. And this is particularly important in Afghanistan, where you can see that there has been kind of a pullback by a lot of people. Um, and China is still seen as one of the prominent actors that's engaged on the ground. In fact, I actually think that some Western powers are engaging more with the Taliban than actually the Chinese are, but we can talk about that later if people are interested. But the idea of China as a kind of important player there is clearly something that the Taliban are trying to cultivate and highlight. But I've seen very little evidence of China actually stepping in in any sort of a way trying to manage and push this forwards, even though they see that Afghanistan has the potential to be a really big problem for them. Um, and then Russia, which of course hangs over this entire discussion. Uh, Russia is the big power in Central Asia. Russia is the kind of lingua franca in the region, though actually increasingly less so once you get outside the capitals where people don't speak Mandarin, but they do speak their local Kyrgyz or Kazakh or, or Tajik or Uzbek. Um, but Russia still hangs heavy and is still an important player in this region. Um, and Russia is a country that has had an increasingly fractious relationship with the region, one that's become much more acute since the invasion of Ukraine at the beginning of the year. But I think the key point I would say about Russia is that notwithstanding any tensions you might see uh, between Russia and China potentially on the ground in Central Asia, it's never going to escalate up. Because at the end of the day, from a Chinese and Russian perspective, the bilateral relationship they have with Mos between each other is infinitely more significant than anything on the ground in Central Asia. So over the years I got to go to the region, I constantly would hear people saying, oh, well, you know, if the Chinese are rising, the Russians must be declining. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> a, it's not a zero-sum game in that way. The region will try to cultivate both, and we'll find it has to, because Russia still has a very important role to play. And also, the two of them are not interested in treading on each other's toes, and will always try to find a way around it. Having said that, I think it's been very interesting to observe the dynamics since the war in Ukraine earlier this year. And I think the interesting thing I would point out about that is here, um, this, uh, these are two photos taken from Pre President Xi's visit uh, to Central Asia earlier this year, which was notable to be his first visit outside China since uh, COVID-19, um, and he chose to go to Central Asia. I think it highlights once again the importance, I think, of Central Asia and Chinese uh, thinking and the degree to which they find it a safe space. And in both of these photos, we can see the leaders on the top, uh, we can see President Mitsuyoyev of Uzbekistan, and on the bottom, we can see President Tokayev of Kazakhstan giving President Xi a nice big shiny medal, you know, celebrating it's the order of friendship of their respective countries uh, towards China. 
Now, this was on the fringes of the Shanghai Corporation Organization Summit that was held in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, which President Putin also attended. Um, and the thing I would note is that President Putin didn't get a shiny medal, but he brought a shiny medal, which he gave to President Mitsuyev. So if you wanted to send a, a sort of very uh, anecdotal <laughs> evidence of the degree to which the relationships are kind of shifting in the region, we can see there Russia is trying to curry its relationship with the region because of the region happening. And the region is very keen to try to carry its relationship with China, recognizing that it's trying to sort of strengthen its other links because its connection with, um, with Russia has become uh, quite complicated. And the only final point I'll say about COVID-19 is that it was very interesting to see actually during the pandemic, uh, the relationship with China, which became quite complicated because we saw uh, a, a precipitous drop off in bilateral trade. Um, and actually kind of the big trade in terms of, uh, you know, oil and gas, uh, stuff like that didn't get hindered and trade through the region didn't get hindered, but trade on the ground, um, you know, Chinese, Uz, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, Uzbek farmers who send a lot of produce increasingly to China suddenly couldn't get their produce to market. And similarly, getting goods out of China was actually quite complicated because of the restrictions that we saw imposed with COVID. And it's literally only, I think, this week that they've reopened air routes directly between China and Central Asia. So you know, it, it was a really big problem. And I think it's highlighted a, a real dilemma that you've seen for the region over the past few years, which is a concern around their growing dependence on uh, China as an economic partner. And COVID highlighted to them how important that was to them. And so you see a real sharp economic drop off there, which um, again, I can come back to you if people are interested, but I will stop there. You have a gratuitous plug of the book and my contact details. And I look forward to hearing any questions or thoughts, disagreements, contradictions, corrections. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Rafaelo, for uh, this uh, great introduction. Uh, uh, before we, we take uh, some questions, uh, and for those of you who are on Zoom, if you'd like to ask a question, please uh, uh, send it uh, by uh, in the chat box at the MEI events. Uh, let me take the privilege of being the moderator just to uh, uh, share some impressions and uh, ask you uh, questions on the on the book. I mean, I had the, the pleasure of reading the book uh, in the, the past few days. And uh, for those of you who uh, are thinking about uh, doing it, please do, because it's a, it's, it's a great reading. And um, uh, the, the, the first surprise I had was that it's not just an academic book. It reads like... Um, uh, uh, an explorer's book. I mean, we are on the ground with you and uh, Alexander uh, Peterson. Uh, you describe uh, your experience throughout the region. And this is, I mean, this is uh, fascinating. This is also fascinating because as you explained early in the book, uh, it, it has been a project for more than a decade, actually. Uh, and that leads to uh, one big question I had, which uh, you explain in the book that one of the first reasons both of you worked on that project that was that you wanted to raise awareness uh, in the US uh, about what China was doing in Central Asia. And I can only assume that when you started working on the topic, uh, it wasn't as topical as it seems today. Uh, so I'm curious, given the, the, the time between the moment you started the project and now, how would you qualify the, the U.S. interest. I mean, uh, especially now uh, after the withdrawal of Afghanistan, uh, uh, my assumption that uh, unfortunately it's probably even less than it was uh, 10 years ago, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that, the U.S. interest on that specific topic, because that was one of the reasons why you started working on that. No, thank you. It's a, a really good question. Thank you for reading the book. I appreciate that a great deal. Um, I think it's, uh, you're right, when we started it, it was, the focus was meant to be a Washington policy, policy audience, and that, that, that kind of remains, I mean, some things remain the same in some ways, in the sense that, you know, Central Asia isn't a huge priority for, uh, you know, Washington. Uh, and you're also entirely right that Afghanistan tends to be the lens through which China, the US was engaging with the region. China was kind of an afterthought. Um, and I think that's, changed a bit, but it's changed in a kind of curious way because, you know, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan has meant that they've now tried to think, well, where can we do things nearby to give us an ability to have an overwatch into Afghanistan? And so you can see Central Asia being interesting in that regard. 
But having said that, at the same time, um, they also realize that, you know, Central Asia sits adjacent to China, <laughs> mm. you know, and if you go back and look at, for example, uh, American Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, you know, President Trump's last Secretary of State, um, he did a visit through the region in late in his administration, late 2020, uh, and he visited, I think it was at least two of the capitals. It was at least Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. I can't remember how many others. And what's interesting is you look at what he said, and he talked a lot about China. And he talked a lot about trying to, you know, create a greater environment, uh, an environment that's more hostile towards China in the region. And frankly, it went down very badly, you know, in the region, because the region, much like Southeast Asia, is not eager to choose between one side and another. And so they kind of are frustrated when someone tries to foist that decision upon them. And so that frustration has endured. But I think what's interesting, if we look now at the new administration we see in Washington, we can see that Central Asia is still not a priority, but we can see actually some interesting attention going into it. Um, and the attention does seem to be looking more in an Afghan direction at the moment, with China coming as a secondary concern. Um, but you know what I have yet to really see, and this is kind of an issue that we were thinking about at the time when we started this, and I think still endures, is I've seen very little evidence of kind of grand strategic thinking towards the kind of Eurasian heartland as an area where the United States needs to think in bigger strategic terms rather than in very narrow security terms about potential risks coming out of Afghanistan. Or, you know, if we look at, uh, you know, economic interests, you know, companies like Chevron Exxon are huge players in Kazakhstan, for example. You know, so there is a very strong economic interest that the US also has in the region, um, but it's, you know, quite specific and narrow. What you don't see is a kind of holistic vision mm. of how we should engage with this region and encourage it out in a certain direction. Um, you see a very specific narrow pecuniary interest. And the other problem is, and this was something we noticed throughout the years of, of working, is that the United States, unfortunately, is a fickle actor. <laughs> you know, you'll see the sort of the beacon of American foreign policy attention, a light focus for a year, and then move on to something else. Um, and this happened over the years with Central Asia a few times. I think at the moment we're in the midst of one of those parts where the beacon is focusing in on parts of the region. Um, but uh, let's see how long it lingers, frankly. And, and this is a real problem, I think, for, for the United States, because the region recognized this. You know, they know that it won't necessarily hold attention for that long. And they recognize that if the U.S. loses interest and sort of goes off to focus on something else or decides we don't need to worry about Central Asia for Afghanistan, we can use Pakistan for that. Um, then, you know, what do they do? <laughs> you know, and if they've gone too far on a limb with their relation with the U.S., that might then cause problems with China and Russia, who they're stuck sharing borders with forever. You know, so it's a it's an interesting dynamic that you can see. And I think the one problem that the U.S. always has this impression they give of being kind of uh, being a fickle, uh, a fickle player in the region. And, you know, to be honest, we're, we're both Europeans, I think. And, you know, we, we certainly are, are the European Union is even more guilty of this. You know, and European Union, who frankly should be even more engaged in this region, mm. has always been an incredibly you know, depending on who's holding the presidency, the rotating six-month presidency in Brussels, that determines whether Central Asia rises up as a concern or not. And Europe is the biggest economic player in a lot of these countries, you know, and so uh, cumulatively, Europe should be a far more engaged actor, frankly, and it's not. And, you know, this is a region which is contiguous with European territory. So, you know, uh, that that's, I think, the big issue that we saw consistently throughout, I think, this 10-year process. Thank you very much. We'll uh, start with questions uh, from uh, the, the auditorium. Let's start with Misha. Yeah. Hello. Thanks so much. Was, again, I learned a lot like your ME 101 lecture. I had a question about the sinophobia. Mm. Like, how much sinophobia is there? Is it something that uh, Central Asian political parties talk about as an agenda issue? Is it discussed in news media panel shows? Is there like special interest groups that or misaction against China if they get into power, that kind of thing? Um, that's an interesting question. I think, look, the thing I would say is that, of course, we have to remember that this is a region that has a relatively controlled, you know, space for public discourse. Um, it varies from country to country, you know? Uh, so, for example, in Turkmenistan, the concept of a free and open media in the way that we would imagine it does not exist. Um, you know, in, in the other countries, it's to varying degrees. 
you know, Kyrgyzstan is, is a more open media environment. Kazakhstan is as well, though there are limitations. Um, Uzbekistan is moving in that direction. Um, and uh, Tajikistan is confusing, frankly. Uh, it's got some very open media components, but also actually it's quite tightly controlled. And you can see recently there's been a certain level of crackdown. So the reason I, I add that comment as a preface is not because that's specific to Ch about China, but it's more that we have to remember the political context that we're, the, the environment that we're talking about. And so when one, are, when one looks at political parties or the sort of public discourse, it is controlled. You know, it is controlled to, to, to varying degrees. Now, what's interesting within that is the degree to which you will see, uh, you know, and this is particularly true in Kyrgyzstan, you will see political parties and the photo I put up there of those two gentlemen, they're reflective of kind of nationalist mood you find in Kyrgyzstan, which is quite expressive towards uh, being anti-Chinese. Um, and it's one that exists and it's one that attracts a certain amount of public and popular attention. Um, the government doesn't love it and tries to climb down on it a bit, but not that much. <laughs> um, they're also maybe not able to, frankly, because they need that kind of nationalist voice um, to support them publicly. But it's a cause of consternation to the Chinese embassy, and they will regularly have a shout at their uh, uh, Kyrgyz counterparts about it. Um, you know, if I look instead at, at Kazakhstan, there you've seen a certain level of protest towards what's happening in, in Xinjiang. Uh, in the re-education camps. And the concern is mostly about, uh, is ethnic Kazakhs, the Kazakhs in Kazakhstan, worrying about what's happening to their ethnic brethren across the border in Xinjiang. And there's been a protest, for example, outside the consulate in Almaty for I think about 600 days now, you know, a sort of static protest of a few dozen people who are, you know, worrying about their family members across the border. Um, now, you know, Kazakhstan is ultimately an environment where political protest only happens by consent. So the fact that government's letting it happen reflects their willingness to allow that discourse to be expressed. Um, and we have seen some bigger protests that you've seen against uh, uh, Chinese projects in Kazakhstan. And some of these seem to be genuine expressions of anger by the public who are angry at, you know, public despoiling, you know, environmental concerns, uh, things like that. And we see this in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan as well. But some of them in Kazakhstan in particular, you do see evidence that they're being stirred up by political opposition, who's trying to create it. So he's using this as a way to have a fight and have a go at the government and, you know, the, the. so, you know, there is a degree of that. Now, if we look at the other countries, um, the public space is much more controlled in a way, and we don't see any of these kinds of public protests in the same way. Now, if we then look instead at the sort of public level, I, I was, you know, I think if you talk about the neighboring, the border countries, there is a kind of public narrative towards China uh, that is, broadly quite negative, actually, at a public level. Um, if you talk to average people, they'll tell you all sorts of horror stories about Chinese. And, you know, I can't remember in Tajikistan, they used to tell us, you know, when the Tajik, when the Chinese company comes, all of the animals disappear, you know, right down to the rats and the snakes, because they eat everything, these people. You know, they, of course, it's untrue, you know what I mean? But this is kind of the public view that they hold towards, you know, the Chinese. And it's it's just racist, frankly, you know, but that, that kind of view does it does exist in the kind of public discourse, sadly enough. Um, whereas in, you know, in the Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, you'll find a lot of kind of anger as well, you know, at a public level. They're coming in, they're invading our country, they're taking over. And the interesting thing is at government level, the governments are really positive about Chinese investment and they want more of it, frankly, because they recognize it's important. And so there's a tension that they're constantly trying to manage. And I remember talking to Kazakh officials at various points who would say to me, you know, I'd say, well, what do you do that you've got these large public protests which are going to hold up a project you want to do? In Kyrgyzstan, they've actually had to block projects as a result of this, you know? Um, and the government says, yeah, well, you know, we, we try to manage it, but it's difficult. There is a lot of public animosity, you know, towards uh, towards China. It's, some of it seems organic. Some of it seems a bit stirred up. Um, in Turkmenistan, you don't really see any of this, frankly speaking. And in Uzbekistan, I think the, the geogra geographical distance helps kind of insulate them a bit. And also actually the levels of Chinese investment in their country are only now picking up, you know? If you go back and look a few years, until, you know, uh, when, when Uzlam Karimov died in 2016, it kind of opened the country up. And you only really see large Chinese investment coming after that. Before then it was quite close. So in a way, the story of China, the kind of the overwhelming invader hasn't arrived in Uzbekistan yet. And so that's why I think you don't see at the public level the same level of, uh, of maybe uh, dislike and in Turkmenistan, it's just a very controlled country. So, yeah. Thank you. George? Thank you very much. Um, my name is George Bostin. I'm a visiting research fellow at the Institute. And um, 
uh, I have to commend you, uh, Dr. Pantucci, for uh, giving a voice uh, to neglected, I think the most neglected part of Asia. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, being a frequent visitor in the most uh, closed down part of uh, Central Asia, which is Turkmenistan. And there I got a flavor of the region, which was quite unique. And uh, you might share my observation that uh, uh, these countries um, are now uh, seeking uh, their uh, own identity uh, individually and collectively after having shared uh, an identity that was forced uh, on them by uh, first by uh, Russian expansion in the uh, beginning of the 18th century until the Soviet rule. And uh, the, since they broke away, of course, uh, uh, they had to face this problem of identity, which in my view is uh, taking them back to their old Turkic roots. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, maybe this is an overtly simplified view, but my question is this. Uh, uh, knowing and being well aware that uh, Turkey plays a major part in uh, strengthening and forging this uh, identity, which reaches back into the uh, dawn of history. Um, and Turkey being the single country, to my knowledge, which stood up very forcefully in defense of uh, the uh, Uyghur minority of, or rather the Uyghur uh, inhabitants of Xinjiang. Uh, it goes without saying that uh, for the outside observer, it seems like Turkey has the greatest interest in being a bulwark of Turkic identity and sentiment in what I believe uh, is a standoff with China. Uh, and I wonder, how do you see this? Is it correct to say that Turkey is essentially uh, the major driver of collective thinking along traditional lines, reaching back to identity in the face of what might be a more intense Chinese um, presence or uh, infiltration or penetration in Central Asia. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it's a, look, it's a really interesting question. I think, you know, on, on your... Um, it's difficult because you're entirely right. That there is a Turkic connection with the region, you know, with four of the countries, Tajikistan, of course, the exception, you know, its Persian roots, um, you know, Farsi language. So, you know, but the other four all are clearly Turkic peoples. And, you know, Uyghurs also a Turkic people. So Turkey's always got a kind of important uh, role to play. But what I would also say is that, you know, and I think you, you find this in the region as well, is that there is a level of kind of unfulfilled expectations in some ways with Turkey. You know, while they do have this kind of common identity and, you know, if you're a young Central Asian, you know, who, who's looking for opportunities in the world, you know, Russia tends to be your first port of call because it's a big economy that you have visa-free access to um, and you speak a language with. The second is Turkey, you know, and there is an interest in Turkey and there's a lot of connections and economic links in Turkmenistan that you mentioned, of course, is visa-free, you know, back and forth with Turkey and there are large numbers of Turkmen you know, according to some estimates, what is it, like almost a fifth or fourth or quarter of the population live there, um, you know, because Turkmenistan's economy is, 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 is unfortunately in a bit of a difficult spot at the moment. But I think the difficulty is that I, I don't see Turkey coming in and offering the same things that, frankly, China does. Um, you know, so if we go back to the 1990s, right, which could have been the moment, and you saw a push at the time by Turgut Uzul, you know, the Turkish leader, to go and develop Turkish relations with the region, but it happened in a moment when Turkish economy was going through a very bad spot. And so they came with this ambition, but it didn't follow through with anything in a way, right? And so it, it kind of didn't, nothing came. And then, you know, years passed, the Turkish economy picked up again, and you see them trying to come back. And, you know, more recently, you know, after the coup in, I forget now the year, in the attempted coup against Erdogan a few years back, you know, the big purge after that was of the Gulenists and the Gulenist schools. Well, there are actually a lot of Gulenist schools in Central Asia that at the time were funded by the Turkish state. It was kind of the Turkish version of the Confucius Institutes. And the Central Asians loved it because they were getting an education in a language that was proximate to them in a place that they could then try to go to afterwards. But these all closed down because they were all perceived as Gulenist and 
all the teachers got purged and so on and so forth. And so the Turks kind of, kind of pulled the rug under their own soft power victory in the region. And the economic side has never been able to be as appealing in some ways as the kind of Chinese one. Now, having said that, uh, Uzbekistan that I just mentioned uh, a moment ago, where we can see, you know, Chinese investment has gone up, but not quite up yet. Actually, it's Turkish investment and Turkish companies that are very active on the ground in Uzbekistan. The Chinese are catching up with them very quickly, but they're very active there. Um, and in, in Turkmenistan, you know, you look at the big, beautiful white marble buildings that, you know, it's it's a French company, Bouge, this building, some of them, and it's a, a Turkish company, Mel uh, Melix, I'm ah, forgetting now, um, it starts with an M anyway, it's a big Turkish company contractor that does a lot of that construction. So they have a, a kind of thing there, but I think the problem is that there's two sides. So one is Turkey doesn't have the economic wherewithal and thing to really compete in an appealing way to the region. And the second, I actually think that the kind of Turkic stuff plays against them at a national level, because the very issues you started off talking about, like national identity, the big push over the past few years in Central Asia has been towards crafting a national identity. You know, Kazakhstan, for example, has been pushing that people use the Kazakh language and they write not in Cyrillic, so like the Russians anymore, but in Roman language, Roman letters. Um, there's a big push, you know, I, I, I funny anecdote I remember from talking to diplomats was when the Kazakh government started to really push this in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan in particular, so all the foreign embassies, if you have a, you know, diplomatic note verbal you want to send to us, you have to send in Kazakh now. Panic stations, everyone's like, okay, we need Kazakh translators. And there weren't that many around, <laughs> you know, and so suddenly the entire diplomatic community had an issue. They couldn't submit their official request to the Turkey, to the local government, because, you know, usually they would just send it in Russian and the Kazakhs would go with that, but they said, no, we're in Kazakh. So, you know, there's a real national identity push and that plays against the Turkish push, which is much more about Turkic world and the Turkic community, which kind of contradicts this national identity narrative. So it's a complicated one for Turkey, which I think, you know, uh, and then I need to briefly touch on your final point about Turkey um, standing up China. It is true, Erdogan has historically had a very strong uh, sentiment towards the, the Uyghurs. Uh, you know, if you go to Istanbul and you go to the Blue Mosque, right near the Blue Mosque, there's Martyrs Park, which is named after Isuf Yusuf Alpekin, a famous Uyghur leader. Um, you know, and, the, and you go there and it's quite openly <laughs> anti-Chinese, lots of little flags saying curse China, evil PRC, all this stuff. Um, that was when he was mayor of Istanbul. He created that, you know? And you go back and look at after the riots in, what was it, in 2009? I think it was in 2010 or so. He famously referred to what China was doing in Xinjiang as a genocide. Well, I think the narrative has changed in, in, in Ankara now towards uh, the Uyghurs. They are still very supportive of the Uyghurs. And I think Turkey is one of the places where Uyghurs still feel they can go and be safe um, because in Central Asia, it's not clear, frankly. Uh, there's a certain level to which the Central Asians, I think, work with the Chinese on repatriation. Um, but you don't see him saying this as much in the public space anymore. And you can certainly see that the relationship has shifted. Um, there's even stories of the Turks repatriating specific Uyghurs that the Chinese are worried about. And the Chinese do complain to them a lot about some of the Uyghur militants they see in Syria. And there's a degree to which I think there's a behind the scenes conversation happening with uh, between Ankara and, and Beijing about some of these questions. So I think, you know, Turkey still seems to be a place which is very welcoming to Uyghurs, but I think the degree to which China, Turkey is going to stand up to China about these issues on the world, so I think has changed. And that speaks to the geopolitics between Turkey and, and China. Next question, Asif. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, congratulations again on this book. I know it's very important to you, especially because of that personal loss and the long time you have invested. Uh, I was just uh, uh, wondering if there is enough material of your last 10 years of research for writing a sequel, Indostan, you know, because uh, apart from uh, China and Russia, which are actually neighboring countries, uh, the other major power which has great interest in that part of the world, is India, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, the Chabahar port project, we have always heard that these are the two major reasons. One, of course, reaching Afghanistan, other is a gateway to Central Asia. So we can understand the amount of interest India has in Central Asia. Uh, my specific question to you was uh, the kind of relationship you have sketched between uh, China and Central Asia. Uh, has there been, uh, if you have observed any pushback from China uh, in 
terms of India and Central Asia relationship? Thank you. Thank you. No, it's it's a good question. I I got to say, a volume about India and Central Asia would be a bit thin, <laughs> and I say that because you, you highlighted all the issues uh, which are uh, why Central Asia would be important to uh, uh, to India. Um, but I think the story of India is really one of unfulfilled expectations. You know, if we go back and look at um, you know Atal Bihari Vajpayee or you know Manmohan Singh. Uh, or even more recently, Mr. Modi, all of them did big tours of Central Asia somewhere early in their in their in their ten in their time. Right? They go to Central Asia, they visit all five of the capitals, or most of them, and they say, "Ah, India will now strike a new relationship with Central Asia, and this will be the beginning of something wonderful." And then, frankly, nothing happens. You know, uh, we see a little bit of Indian engagement, but it doesn't really move beyond that. Um, the uh, Chabahar, the bay, the in the Iranian port, which would be the logical conduit for you know India to have direct access to Central Asia. I mean, the original agreements for that were signed over a decade ago, I think. Um, and the Iranians have gotten, I think, a bit frustrated at <laughs> the lack of activity that's generated from India to the point where I even heard a few years ago that the Iranians were encouraging Chinese companies to come and build because they were getting frustrated and waiting for India to show up in a way. Um, and that, you know, echoes, I think, the biggest issue that I, I see with kind of Indian specific engagement is that, you know, on the ground, uh, you know, there was actually relatively positive sentiment. You know, it's a cliche to say, but Bollywood movies <laughs> are quite popular in the region. You know, um, I remember in, uh, you know, in uh, in Tajikistan in particular, Tajikistan has a very close relationship with India in, in some ways. Um, and it's driven by security concerns. Uh, India's invested in an airbase. Um, in Aini, up uh, near the, the border there, um, which was, I think, an Indian attempt to do some stuff in Afghanistan. I don't know how much they really used it, to be honest. I had, think they had some helicopters there for a while, but I'm not sure it moved much beyond that. And then India did a lot of, um, they built some military hospitals and did a lot of sort of training for Tajik uh, army. And, and actually, there's a lot of Indian students in the region as well. And this is across the region. Um, and, you know, in, in Kyrgyzstan, in, in Tajikistan, you go to medical schools there, there's lots of Indian students. So there is a lot of potential there. But what I haven't yet to see is the Indian state to really follow through on some of its sort of outreach to actually lead to some more tangible uh, kind of goals. Um, they, it, it's kind of really a story of unfulfilled expectations. There was a moment a few years ago when, um, so in Kazakhstan, there's a very big offshore oil project called Kashagan. Its nickname is Cash All Gone because billions of dollars have been spent there and it just takes forever to get going. And it finally got pumping a few years ago, but it took 15 years or something to get going in a billion, $50 billion project. Anyway, um, there a few years back, um, one of the companies, Chevron, decided to divest of its part, right? Um, and it did this. It was around the moment before uh, Modi, I think, visited. And uh, the discussion at the time was, well, okay, who's going to buy this part up? Because the way the contract works is that the Kazakh state-owned enterprise company is kind of the majority owner of the project. And then there's like a whole chunk of like about 50%, which is owned by foreign companies. And so when those foreign companies divest, the Kazakh company has the option of buying that chunk up or putting it out on the market. It can choose. So it has right of first refusal. So the Kazakhs still control the project, right? Anyway, the discussion then was, well... ONGC, the Indian company, wanted to come and buy it, right? And they made a very strong play. And it looked like they might win it. But at the last minute, instead, the project went to CNPC, the Chinese company, which I think was a reflection of the fact that the Kazakhs felt, okay, we should probably, <laughs> you know, yes, we'd love the Indians to come, but uh, okay, we'll stick with the Chinese. And I think that does highlight, I think, an issue that India has in the region. There's a lot of positive sentiment towards them, but there's a sense that they don't necessarily follow through. And that worries, I think, the region in terms of them wanting to put their eggs in the Indian basket, shall we say. But it would be an interesting, I think, paper to write. I'm not sure, but, but paper. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we have about five minutes left. We'll take uh, uh, two or three questions together. Do you mind if we take the last I, question? By the I will be more concise as well. I apologize. Uh, I think microphone, so we'll go there. And then finally, with uh, on the other side, with Clemens. Hi, hello. I'm from the Institute of South Asian Studies, which is just upstairs. Yeah, so uh, I was previously working on India and Central Asia policy. Um, basically, 
I'm here today to ask you two questions. Uh, first and foremost, I really enjoy your book and I hope Thank that you'll sign it for me later. <laughs> and so uh, first question is just so you raised that Western powers are engaging more with the Taliban compared to the Chinese from your observations. So could you elaborate a bit on that? And my second question is beyond the narratives of BRI and the great game, which is kind of in competition with each other, are there any other more useful narratives or lens that we can view Central Asia through, maybe from their own perspective of their future foreign policy? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Pantucci, for your talk. Um, um, my question is actually on the social media landscape within the Central Asian countries and how it actually influences the political narrative or sentiments, as you just mentioned. Um, and also when there's a language change in language policy, usually there are political implications. So I'm um, just wondering, is it when they move from Cyrillic to Romanized, does it have anything to do with the apps which support it? Like trying to move from Russian... Um, social media to something else. I'm not sure. Yeah, thank you. Do you mind if we take a last please, one? Please, no, go. Yeah, sure. Dr. Pantucci, thanks. Uh, Clemence Che from MEI, uh, research fellow as well. Um, I got two questions. The first on, um, you know, about Europe. You, you said that Europe should be more invested mm -hmm. in the region. And in the context of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, uh, is Central Asian gas an option? Uh, and my second question is on uh, the comments that you made on your book's content about, you know, state strategy and security cooperation, you know, in, in China-Central Asia relations. But these are from the state kind of level. What yeah. about from the level of private actors, non-state actors? How, how far do people to people relations go. Uh, I know you talked about Sinophobia, but is there any form of tourism or, or cultural cooperation, you know, these kind of aspects? So thank you. Sure, thank you. Um, I don't know I could group these together, but they're really five different questions. So I should, I, I'll, I'll try to go as, as, as rapidly as I can, conscious of time. Um, I think, look, on, on the first ones, I think, um, you know, the reason I mentioned the Western engaging more in some ways with the Taliban than uh, I think the Chinese are, I say this um, based on what I've heard from other people who are engaged on the ground in Kabul. Um, and I say it partially because I think at the moment, it looks like there's a lot of Chinese activity in Afghanistan, but I think a lot of it actually is private enterprise. Um, so there are a lot of, I understand from people in Kabul, uh, and I've seen evidence I've spoken to some as well, that there are a lot of Chinese who've gone to Afghanistan in the wake of the Taliban takeover. And they've done this because uh, the security situation has gotten much better. You know, it, it is still a dangerous place and you do still need to worry about security. But if you look at levels of violence in Afghanistan, they've dropped since the Taliban takeover, right? And why? Well, obviously there's no civil war happening anymore, right? One side won. Um, and, you know, Chinese businessmen, as a, I'm generalizing vastly here, but they, their tolerance for risk is much higher than frankly Western counterparts or others. And so, you know, if you're a Chinese entrepreneur who is interested in mining or something, you know, suddenly you've got this country next door that is open, right? No one's been able to really do much there for a long time because of the war, it's an opportunity. So I think you've seen a lot of people in that direction sort of going, and this is actually a lot of the economic activity and a lot of the noise you see about the Chinese engagement. The Chinese state itself has not actually done that much. And actually, if you look, it's basically a continuation of what they did before. The key difference is the West is now doing a lot less publicly. Now, behind closed doors, you can certainly see that, you know, you've got, you know, the deputy head of the CIA meeting with his Taliban counterparts in Doha. That's a pretty high level of engagement. William Burns, the CIA director, visited Afghanistan shortly after the fall, right? Um, same with the UK, you know, UK head of MI6 has been to Afghanistan to meet his counterparts in Pakistan. So there is a much higher level of engagement, I think, happening in some West with some Western capitals. So a lot of that happens in Doha, to be honest, rather than in, in Kabul. But you can see level earth. And the Chinese are very good about making noise around what they're doing. But if you actually look at the brass tacks of what's happening, it's actually quite limited. And a lot of it is basically the same as what they were doing before. There was a really interesting story. I'm sorry, I'm going on. I will be more compact on my other questions, but it was very funny. I noticed uh, 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 the uh, Taliban minister of mines, I think just yesterday, was quoted as saying that the famous Mesinac project 
which is a big copper mine just you know north uh, below Kabul that the Chinese signed a contract in 2007 to do and win. You know, he said, oh, you know, well, the, which they never got going and it's been, they've been sitting on for year, 14 years now, right? Um, you know, the Taliban took over and they've been saying since they took over, oh, this is gonna happen tomorrow. The Chinese company has been saying exactly the same things that they've been saying to the Republic government before. So they're not really moving any quicker. Um, but the minister of mine said, oh, well, it turns out we need electricity to get this project going. Well, if you look to the contract that was signed back in 2007, it specifically says electricity is a problem. We need to build a power plant. So 15 years later, we haven't moved at all. So that I, I would just, it's an indicator I would say about Chinese engagement move. Um, on the great power narratives, I think that this one is really, you know, the thing that bothers me about the kind of great power narratives is it removes all agency from the region. These are independent countries. These are countries that I personally have a deep interest and affection for. Um, and they, you know, countries should shape their own history and should be able to. And great power suggests that they're just kind of pawns being shuffled around. And this is traditionally how a lot of people see them. But I think from their perspective, the way they articulate it is what they call a multi-vector diplomacy, where they can kind of strike a balance and they're able to kind of play the cards themselves. It's not always, frankly, very credible, if I'm honest with you, because they are kind of buffeted around by the, the winds of history and, and greater geopolitics. But I often think really, for me, it's really about trying to inject some agency in the local countries and focusing on that rather than the kind of geopolitical chessboard, if you will. On the social media narratives, um, I think it's, you know, it's uh, uh, the, the question around Cyrillic. I mean, yes, it had a bit of an impact, but, you know, just because the government says we should all use the Roman language doesn't mean everybody does, <laughs> you know, and so you'll still see a lot of Cyrillic and people still communicate a lot in, in Cyrillic and still speak in Russian to some degree and, and, and still use it. So it hasn't changed um, that much. You do find a lot of angry discourse online towards China. You do. Um, and if you want to look for, you know, uh, uh, public animosity, it really strikes off. And maybe the one anecdote for there was in, in, in 2020, there was a curious story that emerged. Um, there was a, a, a Chinese clickbait farm in, in Xi'an published a series of articles for the Chinese domestic media, nationalist audience, which was basically saying all of China's neighbors were once part of China and will be once again, right? Now, somebody in Kazakhstan noticed the one, the article about Kazakhstan and decided to translate it and publish it in Kazakhstan saying, you see, they do want to come and take us over. It's all true. And this caused a huge kerfuffle in Kazakhstan, public uproar, lots of anger, lots of animosity. The ambassador was hauled in by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to explain himself. Now, to be fair, I don't think that this was the Chinese state. This was probably the censors in China not really paying attention or thinking about the consequences, or frankly speaking, thinking someone with Kazakhstan would bother to translate the article. But someone did, and this caused a kerfuffle. But it really reflected this kind of animosity that you do have, this kind of underlying xenophobia and this fear of China that does exist uh, towards the region. So that would be on the social media. Um, Central Asian gas for Europe. Uh, yes, that would be the dream. Um, and there are lots of big projects uh, that are discussed. Um, but they've been discussed for a very long time, and they haven't quite happened. Uh, and this, I think, speaks to, frankly, un unfortunately, failures in, in European diplomacy, um, and also just the difficulty of doing it. Part of the reason we are seeing uh, President Charles Michel visiting the region, we're seeing a real reinvigorated push, is exactly what you refer to. Central Asia could be an option for the region to try to get Central Asian gas. But the problem is Central Asian gas would have to come across the Caspian, which is still a very disputed territory, and the countries that you know, had these disputes, they haven't been able to resolve them for a long time. It would take a really concerted effort by European Union diplomacy to unlock that. But if they were able to, yes, theoretically, this would be a logical route for Central Asian gas in particular to get over to Europe. And by the way, the region would love it, you know, but there are strong and difficult relations between, you know, the Central Asian side of the Caspian and the other side of the Caspian. And of course, the Iranians and the Russians ultimately have veto power on a lot of what happens in the region, either through some of the arrangements and agreements that exist in the region, uh, or frankly, through just blowing stuff up. Um, and finally, on the on the people to people, um, look, I, I'm actually quite happy to end on that one because you know one of the things I would say about it is, you know, um, in a way, I, I think one could walk away from this presentation take quite a negative view <laughs> on China's relations with this region, you know. And it is there are lots of issues and problems and tensions, but you know, I. Um, been always struck that there was also a level of curiosity, at least on the Chinese side, towards the region. And 
you know, there are some of the Chinese businessmen I've known longest in the region are ones who really moved there and decided to settle down, learn the local languages, marry marry local people and, and kind of settle down in the longer term. So there is a kind of human connection in, in a positive direction as well, though it does get hit by a lot of these negative uh, perspectives. If you look at the sort of cultural stuff that happens, uh, to be honest with you, a lot of it is quite, um, uh, it's what you'd imagine, you know, epic narratives of the ancient Silk Road and, you know, these sort of mystical stories that, that travel back and forth and, you know, uh, Chinese sponsored tour groups going one way and, you know, Central Asian ones going the other. Um, but there is there is a curiosity there, I think, which is interesting and I think positive and, you know, certainly I, I could, you know, a lot of the Chinese I would meet on the ground in Central Asia, well, you know, some of them really did have a clear affection for the region and were quite taken by it and liked it and were very happy to sort of be there. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm afraid we'll have to stop here. Uh, it was a great pleasure. And uh, as, as we said, uh, for those of you who were either in the room or uh, listening uh, to the uh, webinar. Uh, we uh, greatly encourage you to, to read the book. It's titled Sinostan, China's Inadvertent. And buy the book. I to, to buy the book. Well. Christmas uh, is I, I was assuming <laughs> it, it, it's buying first and then reading it. Uh, so again, thank you very much, uh, Raffaello. Uh, also a special thank to uh, our colleague, uh, Alessandro Arduino, who arranged for this uh, book talk, but couldn't unfortunately be with us uh, today. Uh, this is all uh, for today and uh, have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you very much.